Let's pray. Lord in heaven, I thank you again for this morning. I thank you that this morning you proved to us once again that you are the creator God and you are the one who has created all things and that you sustain all things. And Lord, you are the one who brings all things to their right end. I thank you so much for the privilege we have of being in the same room together. Lord, I thank you that you are a God who is able to save and you do save. And each one of us is evidence and testimony of your saving work. Lord, we remember the kind of people we used to be and we see who we are today and we examine the affections that we have today and we just rejoice, Lord, that what you've done for us is something that we could have never done for ourselves. Lord, I pray for our time together this morning. I pray that each one of us would be blessed and that we would grow. We would grow to love one another. We would grow to love you. We would grow to love your word more and more. Lord, and that we would do it by your grace. Lord, I thank you for this church that you've given to us, a place where we can come and meet together in fellowship. I praise you for the freedom we have to do that. And Lord, may we utilize that freedom well this morning in your grace. And by your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so uh, you, you've got a reading plan and you're on your reading plan. And sometime in the next couple of months, maybe the next few weeks, you're going to find yourself in the Chronicles. And you're going to go back to chapter 1. Just run back to chapter 1 real quick. You get to First Chronicles chapter 1. You've just finished, you know, the kings, and everything's really great, lots of stories, it's entertaining, it's, it's informative, it helps you put things together in history, and you're learning a lot about what God does in Israel and how he's faithful to them. And then you get to Chronicles, and you see eight chapters of names and genealogy. And there's other genealogies in Scripture, and you're asking yourself, okay, um, this is part of my reading plan, I, I want to do this, I want to be faithful to my reading plan, but... <laughs> You know, I need to be honest with you, Lord, this is hard because I can't even pronounce half the names here and I really kind of get lost and everything else like that. Well, perspective is very, very important when you're reading through God's Word and especially when you come to a book like First Chronicles and you're, you're at the beginning of the book and you've got this, this section where you're, for three days you're going to be reading about sons of sons of sons of sons and you really kind of get lost pretty quickly. Um, let's go to chapter 9. And we'll see a little bit about how perspective on all of this is very, very helpful. Uh, we're looking at First Chronicles chapter 9. All right, I'm going to read First Chronicles chapter 9, verse 1, and it's going to tell us a lot that's important here. Um, so all Israel was enrolled by genealogies, and behold, they are written in the book of kings of Israel. And Judah was carried away into exile to Babylon for their unfaithfulness. You see the word was there, that tells you that there's past tense. What that tells you is that First Chronicles was written after the exile. It was written after the 70 year period where Israel was carried away, the southern kingdom, into Babylon. They stayed there for 70 years, and this was written after that time. What we're going to do is we're going to look at a couple of different passages that, that help us understand this. Um, verse 2 tells us, The first who lived in their possessions in their cities were Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the temple servants. Chapter 9, verse 2 is telling us about Jews who returned back to the promised land. When you see the word their possessions there, that's in reference to the promised land. So you're reading through this, this giant genealogy. You know that you're going to be coming to chapter 9 that's going to tell you about life that's being described to post-exile Israel. The reason why this is very important is that they were, in, they were in exile for 70 years. And for that 70-year time, by the time the people who came back from exile came back, 
they had never been, the people who returned had never been in Israel in the first place. They'd never seen the original temple. They'd never been operating under a system of priests that God designed because all of that came to an end in exile. So they really had no idea of how they were supposed to function as a country and as a people. They really didn't understand the significance of their tribes. They really didn't understand much of anything because they'd been in a pagan nation and they had accumulated pagan practices for 70 years. This is all they knew. And so here some of them come back, the remnant come back, and we see this. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at two perspectives on the same story and on the same event that describe the same event from two different points in Israel's history. And so the first one, we're going to turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 5. And we're going to read a story, and we're going to see the, the information that's contained in 2 Samuel 5. And this is going to be helpful to us, and this has to do with shepherding our heart, because it helps us give us perspective while we're reading God's word. We're going to look at 2 Samuel 5. What's happening there is that David is the king of Israel. He has, the Lord has unseated Saul, and the Lord has given David reign. For the first seven years of David's reign, he was in the city of Hebron. And in the last 33 years of his reign, he was in Jerusalem. And as he moved from Hebron to Jerusalem, he was consolidating his power, and the Lord was blessing him, and everything he was doing was good. And the main story there is Israel is growing in its significance. Israel is growing in its power. They've got a good king, and things are going well for Israel. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at verse 17. The Philistines are down to the south of Israel, and uh, they are one of the peoples that Israel did not completely flush out four or 500 years earlier when they took the promised land before the period of the judges. So the Philistines are there, and they are nipping at Israel's heels. Uh, persistently, and they are a, a problem for Israel. Philistines hear that David has been anointed king over Israel, and they went up to seek out David, and when David heard of it, he went down to the stronghold. So the Philistines spread themselves out. They, they claim they, they want to settle for war. David inquires of the Lord in verse 19, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? The Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. That tells you a little bit about the context here. The Lord is with Israel. I will certainly give them into your hand. This is a powerful nation, giants and everything like that. And the Lord says, I will certainly give them into your hand. So um, we see in verse 20 what happens. They go and they, they make battle, they make war, and the Lord is faithful to Israel, and they win, and they conquer, and there's, there's absolutely no question that the Lord was with them. Read verse 21. So the Philistines have come up, and of course they're, they're an idolatrous nation, so they bring their idols with them. They bring their idols with them to the place where they were making war. Verse 21 says, they abandoned their idols, comma, so David and his men carried them away. That's just a very modest statement about what Israel did, um, what David did to eliminate the idols from what had taken place and what the, what the Philistines had brought in. They just carried them away. What we're going to do now is we're going to look at the same story from uh, a time period that was 500 years later. So turn back to First Chronicles where you were. Instead of chapter 9, we're going to go to chapter 14. It's the same story, but it's being recorded 500 years later, probably by Ezra or one of his contemporaries, after Israel comes back. Same story. Um, we're going to look at starting in verse 8. It's the same thing. The Philistines hear that David is now king, and they make war. 
Verse 10, David inquires of the Lord. It's the exact same message, the exact same history of what is taking place. Verse 11 is, is where the war takes place. Verse 12, they abandoned their gods there. So David gave the, gave the order and they were burned with fire. They is the idols. The idols were burned with fire. So it's the same story, but there's more detail here. It's more intense. It's more descriptive. And there's a reason why. The reason why is because for 70 years, these people who had just returned to the promised land from exile, they need to understand how important it is that they remain idol-free as a people. And so Ezra, or whoever the scribe is who's writing this, writes this very descriptively and telling them exactly what took place. So the reason I share that is because um, when we read through our reading plan and we're in the middle of, of uh, First Chronicles, we're seeing all these, all these genealogies and things, we need to put ourselves in the sandals of the Jews who's reading them. The sandals of the Jews who are reading them and the life situation that they had was such that they really actually needed to know about these genealogies. We don't need to know who the son of who was and who had which kids and all of that. What we need to do is we need to recognize that God was at work in post-exile Israel and he was telling them, I am your God, I am Yahweh, and you are my people, and I am faithful to my covenant to you, and I'm going to keep my covenant, and I'm going to bless you when you are obedient to me. And so when we're reading through our, our reading plan and we get to First Chronicles and you see these genealogies, the idea is not to read every word and understand every relationship there. and We'll get lost in all of this. Uh, the idea there is to see what God is doing in that piece of time and in that piece of history. And so I, I say this in advance to any of you who are on a reading plan that's going to bring you to First Chronicles and Second Chronicles sometime here in the next couple of months or something like that. Um, use this to prepare your heart, that God is actually speaking to post-exile Israel, the same <coughs> message about himself. He's the same God and the same king. I share that this morning because for years and years and years when I've been on my reading plans, um, I'm going through my reading plan and I get to this place and I realize, uh, okay, this is hard, but it's, it's all scripture, it's all inspired, it's, it's for my good, and I'll just kind of muscle my way through this and I'll read it in one or two settings and that'll be good. But um, the main thing to remember is that, that God gave this to us he gave this knowing that we would be reading this 2,000 years later, 2,500 years later. And um, he wanted to communicate to us the kind of God that he is. And so when you, you get to these genealogies, remember that what God is doing is, is he is telling Israel, I am still your God, and you're still my people, and I will be faithful to you. So what I do is I, I hope that's important and helpful to you as you get to that point in your reading plan this year. I hope it's encouraging. I hope it gives you some sort of counsel on how to make your way through that section of Scripture and uh, how to see what God is doing uh, in that time. So uh, that's just a word of encouragement for sometime in the next few weeks when you get there. Good morning. Uh, as we prepare, let's go to the Lord one more time. Father, I, I do thank you, Father, for giving us your word that we can know you, we can know what life that is pleasing to you would look like. Father, I pray the words that come from my mouth would bring you glory, the glory you deserve. Father, I pray for, for myself and I pray for these men, Lord, that we would not just be hearers of the word, but we would do what it says. Father, I, I say that and I recognize the only way we can do that is through the work of your spirit in us. Father, may you be pleased with today. Lord, I pray all this in the beautiful name of our Savior, Jesus. 
Amen. Uh, I, I don't know if Scott intended this, that he would teach two weeks ago on repentance and then I would come with 30 uh, imperatives from Scripture that uh, we all may need to have some repentance of. When I first uh, prepared this lesson several years ago, it was 53 imperatives. Uh, I whittled it down from 53 to 35, and today it's at 30, and if you're lucky in a couple years, it might be a few less. But uh, these imperatives, truly, every one of them comes from counseling scenarios where the the sin was obvious of what was going on in the marriage where I was bringing counsel to. Uh, with a title like this lesson has been titled, it's obvious that it fits into D2, it fits into the home. But, man, I, I want to remind you that if you're not doing D1, you're probably going to be failing at D2. Let, let me explain it to you this way. What makes the Christian husband different than the husband that's down the street? What makes the Christian husband different than the Mormon next door? Have, have you ever wondered, wow, they're, they're not believers, but they've been married a long time. Well, they, they seem to have a good marriage. And, and how can that be that they're not even Christians? Have you ever wondered that? I know I have. And men, this might be the most important thing I'm going to say. The difference between the believer and the nice Mormon next door is that we do marriage in worship to God. You are a husband, and it's an act of worship. The, if the goal of your marriage is to never get divorced, that's not a godly motive. It might be great and it might go well with you, but the goal of marriage is that God allows us to worship Him in the midst of marriage. You know, this message has 30 imperatives from Scripture, and I would say obeying commands for the sake of just obeying, that's behaviorism. But obeying commands to be pleasing to the Lord is worship. Men, as believers, we, we are here with a testimony that we love God. Our life must be an act of worship. So, if you're not doing D1, there's a good chance you're going to miss the blessings of what the Lord has for you as you come to your home. Does that make sense? Is there any any questions? Just to throw them out before we get started, because I I think I said a lot about what God's design for marriage is. It's worship. Anything? You guys are already too easy. Thank you. Uh, and I'm going to remind us. This is just a, a reminder before we jump in, and it's the truth of First Corinthians ten thirty one. The goal of the Christian is whether we're eating or drinking or whatever we do, we do it to God's glory. 
with that said, open your Bibles. Let's uh, start in Ephesians chapter 5. I am going to read a text that is uh, one of the clearest teachings on the husband. Ephesians 5, verse 25. I'll be reading 25 through 33. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Verse 28, in the same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. Verse 31, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ in the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. And again, I, I mentioned this verse as I started, and I'm going to remind you of James 1.22. Do not merely listen to the words and so deceive yourself, but do what it says. So let's talk about what God's Word says. Excuse me, Tom. Are sure. You, are you an ESV now? Uh, NIV. NIV. You're NIV? I am NIV. You're welcome, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> Dan's back there going, it's the two of us. We're alone. That's it. <laughs> That's it. All right. All right. Uh, to your handout, guys. Uh, one. The husband is to initiate and maintain love for his wife in the same way Christ initiates and maintains love for the church. It's maintaining a oneness. You even see it in Christ's life how he prayed, how he prayed with his disciples. It's the same oneness. It's addressing areas of concern. Uh, I know for some in this room, you have no problem bringing up concerns, and you can be pretty quick to do it. But I know for others in this room, it might be a bit more passive. Yeah, I, I, I just don't want to talk about the hard things. Guys, the model of Christ is, is we talk about difficult things. Uh, and this brings me to a, a question. Do you pray with your wife? Are you willing to bring up hard topics? Are you willing to bring up your own sin? And this leads us to the first imperative from Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The idea is maintaining a love for your wife in the same way as Christ. Christ is the perfect example. And again, on your handouts, you are to love her in the same way Christ loved the church. Think about what this says. In the same way. Think about the benefits that you have received. The evidences of grace in your life because of 
of the love that Christ has had for you. And when you, when you think about that same way, it, it takes us to the second imperative from John fifteen twelve. This is my command, love one another as I have loved you. Listen to this. Scripture not only commands you to love, but it sets the standard. You don't get to, to say what loving is. Jesus Christ set the standard for what love is. It says, as I have loved you. Now we live in a world, and uh, I'm really going off topic, but we live in a world that says, you must speak to my love language. No, Christ set the standard for what love is. It's a dying to self-love. It's not how you're going to love me. It's how I'm going to love you. I die to self. Think about this standard. I'm going to read uh, to you Romans 8, 35, 38, and 39. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or anguish or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Think, think about what this is saying. Who, what can separate you from loving your spouse? Let me put it to you that way. Verse 38, for I am persuaded, not even death or life, angels or rulers, things present or things to come, hostile powers, height or death, or any other created thing will have power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Do you hear that oneness? Do you hear the unity we have with our Savior? Nothing can separate us. That's the same way we're to to love our spouse. Even when you are sinned against, nothing will separate us. Think about this. This in the in the context of Romans eight, eight one starts with there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. It's talking about the salvation we enjoy, the forgiveness of our sins that we enjoy. Nothing will separate us, men. How are we doing at not separating ourselves when we feel offended or sinned against? The point of these imperatives is you must follow Christ as your role model. He's the perfect example. To love as Christ loves means you must set aside the focus of giving primarily to yourself. You turn away from selfishness, from your control and manipulation, your self-gratification, your self-absorption. Let me, let me kind of explain what that is. The selfishness. Do you demand that you get what you want first? Do things have to be your way? Are you really quick to spend time with your family but not with her family? Control and manipulation. Sometimes it's a voice inflection. Do you, do you kind of can you raise your voice just to kind of make a point? You want to raise your voice just to be sure that you're listened to? Do you do do the silent treatment? Do the silent treatment? Just, I want you to know I'm aggravated right now. The example of Christ's love is we continue to initiate love. (coughs) Self-gratification 
It's excessive behaviors or sinful behaviors. There's two categories there. It's not just sinful behaviors. It's ex excessive behaviors. Uh, I recognize the, the younger generation in the room. Uh, yeah, I, I would say the common thing for, for the younger generation is just absorbed with video games. To the older people in the world, it could be in the, in the room, it could be just absorbed by work and striving to make money to, and you even work to excess. It, it's whatever those excessive behaviors are is frequently a matter of self-gratification. You, know, you want what you want. Self-absorption, that you think you're the most important person in the relationship. And I gave you many other, a few other verses there to consider as you think about those things. Second, back to your handout, by initiating love for her in the same way that Christ initiated love for the believer. And the imperatives is First is John 4.19. We love because he first loved us. Because God first loved us, our will and our affections are transformed. We initiate love by being an example. Are you the example that honors God in your pursuit of the Lord in your family, at home? And, and guys, I know there's several single men in the room right now. Uh, this is not something you get to start on the day you say, I do. If you aren't already developing the habit of pursuing the Lord in a manner that's pleasing to him, uh, don't think that, gosh, you know what, as soon as I say I do, I won't struggle with sin anymore. I won't struggle with any particular sin. It's just a lie. It needs to be started today. Do you, do you set the example by being somebody that's willing to sacrifice? Do you set an example by serving others in, in the house? It's not a matter of being uh, married or single at that point. You know, are you willing to, to give up of yourself for somebody else? Does your, your practice of making decisions, is your decision-making God-honoring? Do you take other people into consideration? Do you set an example of being transparent? Are you, are you honest about the sins that you struggle with? Are you an example of being a forgiving person? Do you seek forgiveness? Uh, I, I, I remember uh, I, I remember the first time I was convicted of needing to seek forgiveness from one of my kids. Are, are you willing to seek forgiveness when you offend or when you sin against somebody? Are you setting an example by not using harsh tones? Are you setting the type of example that you, you're never willing to seek forgiveness? I, ha I have sat with, with people that have never in their marriage, their testimony would be, uh, we've always just moved on. We've never sought forgiveness. That, that's not the model. That's not what scripture teaches. Do you set an example of being the type of person that 
holds a grudge or you're easily offended. We're still talking about the husband being the one that initiates. When you're offended or when you feel sinned against, do you still initiate love? Do you have an attitude of thanksgiving towards life? Being an example is how you bring correction to, to sin in your own home. I, you know, it's interesting, and I have, for whatever reason, God has brought this up in numerous conversations recently about admonishing. Uh, scripture speaks off, often, I'm thinking of Colossians 3.16 right now, how we admonish one another. But I want you to think about this. If you're admonishing, if you're bringing correction, an admonishment is a warning based on Scripture. If, if you're admonishing and it doesn't have Scripture, you're speaking your preference. <clears throat> but I see a lot of people that speak their preference, and they don't have grace for others because they want their preference. A, a true admonishment Men, we need to bring scripture to bear on it. And if you can't bring scripture to bear right now, you are expecting your preference to be done in your house. Christ's love by continuing to initiate love, even if the response is negative or rejecting, just as Christ continues to love those who rebel against him. Think about that. How bent out of shape do you get if you feel like you're being rejected? Think about our Savior, how we reject him daily. On your handout again, point three, by loving and accepting her unconditionally the same way Christ loves and accepts the believer without condition. The, the picture of that same way is, I think, found in Romans 8. Five, excuse me, Romans 5 8. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, men, the time to love your spouse in singles, the time to love others is not when they are doing something that's pleasing to you. We love even when we're being rejected, even when we feel that we're being sinned against. On your handout again, you must give selflessly regardless of her response. You know, so often I, I have seen people seek forgiveness just for the sake of wanting to get something in return. Or maybe being really, really quick to seek forgiveness, thinking that things will get better really quick. You know, and I'll, I'll seek forgiveness and we'll just have peace in the house. No, men, our seeking forgiveness is done in a way that we're worshiping God. It's not seeking forgiveness that I would get a benefit of some sort. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Because it's really easy for me to recognize that I just offended my wife. And it's like pulling a string and right away, will you please forgive me? That's not helpful. E even seeking forgiveness is an act of worship. On your handout again, you must love her and accept her 
for who she is rather than demanding that she changes to please you. Guys, this is a, a, a uh, contextual quote from R.C. Sproul, and I truly, I truly believe his point here. Listen to this. Often, when a husband is not satisfied with who his wife is, his care or lack of care has been instrumental in who she has become. How you love your wife. You're disappointed with your wife. You may be very instrumental in the woman that she has become. You want a godly wife? You invest in things that will help her grow in her godliness. And, and that thought takes us to Imperative 4, Romans fifteen seven. Therefore, accept one another, just as the Messiah also accepts you to the glory of God. By daily dying to self-will and seeking God, and here's on your handout, God's will in the same way Christ did as he as a demonstration of his love and servant's heart. G- Can I say something? Yes. I'm seeing a pattern in your filling. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, I put the cookies on the bottom shelf for, for, the, for the lower lower bar here. I appreciate that. Got it. Uh, you're very insightful. Uh, you can go, except for one, I'm not going to tell you which one. Every answer is the same. It's the same way. Thank you. You are a high achiever, Mike. Thank you. Thank you. That is good. Uh, Jesus willingly gave himself up for us. You should die to self-interest and self-protection. Which takes us to imperative number five. Imperative number five is 2 Corinthians 5.15. And he died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. Again, we're talking about worship. We're living in a manner for him who died for us. Think about this. You're loving your wife is an act of worship to our God and our Savior, Think about what is best for your wife and family. And, and here, here's an area where I, I have seen men just be passively just checked out. Do, do you know who your wife is fellowshipping with? Do you know who her friends are? Do you know who's speaking into her life? Uh, and, and I realize... You know, I am most likely right now speaking to the single guys in the room because I do think what I see with the men I, I know in this room, you are very diligent that your wife is part of Wellspring. Many of you, you're very diligent in your small group attendance. In uh, men that are single, let me speak to you for a second. Uh, you need to care about who influences your spouse. Uh, you know, and I say that one of the things I think of with the number of books that get published in the in the name of Jesus Christ, there's a lot of not helpful things out there. Are, are you aware of what your spouse is reading? Are you understanding what's influencing uh, her love for God? And again, back to your handout B, 
you are to be willing to lay down your life for her if called to do so, which is the way Christ demonstrated love for the believer. Uh, men, sometimes there, there's difficult things we must do in caring for our spouses. Are you willing? Do you just want peace? Or are you willing to do the difficult things? You are to love her as much as you love yourself, which takes us to imperative number six, Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine. In the context of, of Matthew 32, I'm sorry, Matthew 22, and I don't know what I just said, but the imperative six is Matthew 22, verse 39, and it starts with, that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul. And verse 39 is the second is love your neighbor as yourself. And that ties to imperative number seven, which is Ephesians 5, 28 to 30. In the same way, husbands, you are to love your wife as your own body. We live in a world that says, the therapeutic movement says, you just need to love yourself more. Scripture, there's nowhere in Scripture that says, thou must love yourself. Scripture already assumes you love yourself plenty. Because Scripture, when it speaks about how you love yourself, it's telling you numerous ways that you love in the same way you love yourself. So this notion in the world that you just need to love yourself is not true. You need to love others in the same way you love yourself. And I'll continue reading Ephesians 5, 28. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, so we are members of his body. D, on your outline, you are to focus on her welfare, desires her well-being as much as you focus on your own. Yeah, and, and I think many of you really excel at what I'm going to say next. This is both the spiritual as well as the other areas of your wife's life. Do you help her be freed up to develop friendships and you know, being discipled, her time with other women? And I'm speaking to the singles. Men, as you, if your desire is to take a wife, you need to be recognized in the importance of who speaks into your spouse. You need to be, all of us need to be, uh, need to be recognizing who we're allowing to just be our influences in our own lives. Uh, which takes us to imperative number eight. And that's Philippians 2, 4. Everyone should not only look out for his own interest, but also the interest of others. You are to protect her from hurt and harm as much as you try to protect yourself. Think about that. As much as you try to protect yourself, that's how much you are to be protecting your spouse. Do you know what your wife's reading? Do, do you know what books are influencing her? Do, do, do you know what your wife is praying about? You are to treat your wife as you <coughs> desire to be treated. And as Mike pointed out, you know, the same way. The same way that Christ loves us. And that takes us to imperative number nine, which is from Matthew seven twelve. Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do the same for them. This is the law and the prophets. 
Man, we're, we're to love our spouses by initiating love to them. I, I have seen numerous people withhold love from their spouse until they feel loved the way they want to be loved. That's not the model of Christ. We, we love our spouse regardless of our circumstances. Again, on your handout, the husband is to be the servant of his wife in the same way as Christ served his church. For service to your wife is an outflow of the evidence of your love. How, how you care for your wife is an evidence of the love that comes from you. Do you take responsibility for things around the house? Guys, I am particularly challenged in this area. These hands really don't do much. Uh, These hands really can't do much. Uh, But I have a responsibility to make sure that my house is in good working order. And so do you. Uh, And I ask you, you, do you take responsibility for the things that need to be done around the house? Biblical leadership is evidenced in service to your wife, to your family, and to others. Do you lead your your family spiritually? Guys, we had a six-year-old and a four-year-old when we first were saved. Ann and I were saved within weeks of each other. But it was, unfortunately, several years later until I was convinced or even convicted of my role as spiritual leader. You know, being brought up Catholic, I was brought up that it was the church's responsibility. And when I first became a believer and, and truly recognized my sin and desired to repent from sin, it was a couple of years before I recognized what, what God says about my role as spiritual leader. And, and if you're not leading in your home today, if you're not striving, please talk to, to, to one of us. Talk to me. Talk to Scott. Talk to any of the elders. Talk to many of the men in this room. But I, I know for me, I remember the buzzword when I was first a believer. I was uh, in my late 20s. And, and the buzzword was family devotions. Well, I guarantee you this, family devotions look different in every home. So you can't go to the concordance and look up family devotions and figure it out. But if you're struggling to have a consistent uh, family devotion or a, a spiritual a, a spiritual mindset in your house, please, please ask. It looks different in every home and that's okay. But because you don't know what to do, don't let that be the reason why you don't do it. Men, we need to be leading in our houses spiritually. Yes. How do we, um, can you help us uh, with, with how do we, um, how do we help um, our wives that don't want to be helped, that, mm. that reject our, our help, yeah. our wanting to lead? Um, yep. How, how do we, how do we do that? Uh, I, I would say, especially uh, when a wife doesn't want to be led, it, you need to ask yourself, is she not willing to be led by how I want to lead? You, you might need to go meet her right where she's at and, and kind of figure out what's important to her spiritually and, and start there. And, and I'm, this is 
just the way my brain works. Uh, it's not the way everybody's is. It's, it's just a way. It's not the way. Uh, I will find a track. When, and when I say track, I use that in two words. It's a course to run on. Uh, because it's easy to get derailed and do nothing. Uh, so I will have something that I want to work through. But it's meeting her probably of what's important to her, where she's at right now. If you're living, living with a non-believer, it may become more difficult. But if you're living with somebody that's just at a different spiritual place, it's not fulfilling my needs by, let me tell you this, but recognizing where she's at and meeting her there. Put the cookies on the bottom shelf. Hopefully that's helped. And we could talk more. And you're probably wondering right now, wow, you're on imperative number 11. How are you going to get to 30? Watch me. <laughs> Just watch me. Uh, uh, your attitude is commanded to be the same as Christ, who humbled himself by assuming the role of slave. Guys, I, 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 this is just counseling scenarios I've seen. Are there things around the house that you think are just above you? I'm not going to do that. That's not helpful. That's not an act of service. And that takes us to imperative number 10, and that's Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Make your attitude the same of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of slave, taking on the likeness of men, and when he had come as a man in external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Men. The point of this verse is there is nothing that is above us. We're servants. We're slaves. Back on your handout, true humility is evidenced in putting the interest and welfare of your wife and family before your own by giving of yourself regardless of the inconvenience or the difficulties involved. So let me ask, do you, do you ever act as if it's you're above providing things that the family needs. Right? That takes us to imperative number 11, Philippians 2.3. Do nothing out of rival, rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others more important than yourself. Again, back to the handout 6. I'm going to trick you on this one. The husband's foremost command is to love Therefore, you must submit yourself to the terms of which God defines as love in a relationship to your wife. Uh, scripture records God's definition of love and the importance that he placed on it. And guys, go to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And we're going to look at uh, the love chapter. And, and this is how we're going to do it. We're, we're going to look at... We're going to look imperative number 12 through 25 right now. There's that many, there's 14 imperatives in this small passage. Think about this as I read this. Uh, there's, we're going to read seven verses, and the first three 
uh, God describes the importance of love before he tells us what love is. God thought it was important for us to understand how important this was before he gave an imperative. 13, verse 1. If I speak human or angelic language but do not have love, I am a sounding gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so that I can move mountains, but I do not have love, I have nothing. And if I donate all my goods and feed the poor, and if I give my body in order to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not conceited, does not act improperly, is not selfish, is not provoking, and does not keep a record of wrong. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And then this is imperative 12 through 25. 14 imperatives here. Men, you must be patient. Put your expectations on God, not on others around you. Put your expectations on God to endure hardship, to endure difficulties. What, what happens when you have unmet expectations? How do you respond? Typically, our response when we have unmet expectations is we sin. You must resist being judgmental, demanding, negative, being critical, intimidating, or focusing on the sin of other people around you, in this case, particularly your wife. Take the log out of your own eye before you go to do spec surgery on on your wife. Let me ask you a question. Are you easily offended in your house? When things don't go your way, are you easily offended? And it takes us to the picture of what we see in Philippians 4.11 on contentment. Paul says in Philippians 4.11, he learned to be content. How are you doing? Singles, let let me help you before you ever even think about getting married. Uh, Don't wait till the day of your marriage to say, okay, I'll I'll learn contentment. Uh, Start now. Start learning what it is to be content with what the Lord has for you. First Timothy 6, 6 says, goodness with contentment is great gain. Uh, men, we, we are to be godly. And we need to find our contentment in just accepting what God has for us on this day. Be patient by, by learning to be content in trials and difficulty, whether the, the difficulties are your wife or your children. Uh, again, we must learn contentment. How, how do you learn contentment? It, it's by recognizing, Lord, this is what you've ordained for me today. This, this is what you have for me today. I have no expectations 
This is far better than I deserve. What does scripture say we deserve? We deserve hell. We are sitting here today in the 7-8 room at Grace Bible Church. This is a good day. We did not get what God says we deserved. <clears throat> uh, be motivated by the desire to see your wife change for her sake rather than for your own sake. You, your desire for her to change is that she's glorifying God with how she lives, not that it's a benefit to you. Pray for her with a godly motivation. Your desire for your wife needs to be to be God-glorifying, not a selfish motive. Next imperative, you must be kind. Seek opportunities to, to show kindness. Ephesians 4.32 tells us be compassionate, forgiving. Be polite, considerate, understanding, caring. Be sensitive. You must not be jealous or envious, not possessive or controlling. If, you're, if your wife's priorities are wrong, forgive her, admonish her. Remember, admonishment is a warning based on Scripture, in love. Or you just need to overlook. There's times it's okay to overlook. Uh, and I'll give you an example because I've had I've had young men that are very zealous for for holiness challenge me when you when I have said you know what you just need to overlook. If I were to do something just absolutely out of character, uh, and I do it one time, I would say you know what you give me the grace and overlook it one time. But if you see me having a pattern. Let, let's say I just used foul language, coarse language, and it was just one time. I would want you to give me the grace and say, man, Tom must be having a hard day. But if you saw a pattern of it, I, you need to come to me and say, hey, brother, this, this is not becoming. And so in the same way, if, if it's something that's really out of character, it's okay to overlook. But it's, we, we would want to admonish things that you see as a pattern of life. Uh, I, I have seen men be so zealous for, for righteousness in other people that they could not overlook anything. And, and I don't think that's loving. Hopefully that makes sense. And if you want to challenge me on that, we could talk more. Because there's some sins that you can't overlook. I'm not saying that every sin, but, but there's sometimes uh, you need to recognize there's, there's things that we just need to overlook. And I realize somebody's going to take that and say, Tom said this. Please come talk to me if you question that. Tom said it no, 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 what it'll be, it'll be twisted. Tom says you need to overlook it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yikes. If your wife's priority, priorities are wrong, help her reorder her priorities. You know, help her sit down and just kind of make a plan. Go through your calendar. Help her, help her in her priority making. 
again, about learning contentment, be content and, and thankful in whatever circumstance the Lord has for you. Uh, do not be boastful or arrogant. Don't feel the need to act superior over your spouse. That you're the most important person in the relationship. It, guys, uh, this one... Don't try to control your spouse with logic. Don't don't try to just go logical on them. That, that's not helpful. Take it from me. Uh, don't put her down. Don't put her down in private. Don't put her down in public. Don't be rude, sarcastic, vulgar. You must realize that she was created in the image of God and is to be treated with respect and with honor. Do not be self-seeking. Love is not selfish. And I, I am going to go much quicker. Here's a verse you might want to write down that kind of supports that, and it's 2 Corinthians 15. I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. Uh, do not be easily angered. Don't physically or emotionally harm your, your spouse. Be forgiving. Respond gently when you're sinned against. Picture of that is Proverbs 15.1. You must keep no record of wrong. Don't, don't carry a grudge. Don't repay evil for evil. Forgive all transgressions in the same way that Christ has forgiven you. Do not delight in evil. Do not engage in, in lust and sinful activities and pursuits. It's not loving. You are to bear all things. You must protect. Don't withdraw spiritually. Don't withdraw physically or emotionally. The example of Hebrews 13.5, Christ says, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. We love in the same way. You must believe all things. Believe the best. It, you know, if, if something is happening, uh, put the interpretation on it of believing the best instead of thinking the worst. Don't judge motives. You don't know the heart. Love hopes all things. Again, it's thinking the best. Love endures all things. Guys, when, when you have an unmet expectation, believe the best about your spouse. When you get home and it's just not the way that you had planned on it, be gracious. Recognize this is what the Lord has ordained for you. This is God's will. Back to your handout uh, seven. The husband is the head, the leader of his wife and the family in the same way. Christ is the head of the church. You are to lead your wife because this is the position already given to you. You lead your wife as Christ led the church. You lead by seeking wisdom in your decision making through scripture, through prayer, through wise counsel. Gave you several verses to consider there. Seek your wife's counsel and input on important things. In those statements, take us to the 26th 
We were just at 12, and now I'm at 26. Uh, Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows is what he will also reap. Uh, guys, don't, don't be procrastinator. Don't be lazy. Uh, in, don't be lazy in making decisions. Don't be lazy in refusing to make decisions. <coughs> Uh, to neglect things that must be taken care of. I gave you some, some verses to, to consider there, Proverbs 24, 30-34, Ecclesiastes 10, 18. Don't be a slacker, is what Scripture says. B- because here's the thing, here's the point of this. You need to realize when you, when you don't make a decision to do something, that is a decision. You get that? When you don't make a decision that is a decision in your decision making to make no decision is a decision God calls us not to be lazy not to be a slacker we need to be men that are leading Uh, I, I have seen numerous times where men are so passive and maybe even in fearing if I make the wrong decision you need to recognize when you don't make a decision, you have just made a decision. I, I hope that makes sense to you. Because I have had I have seen numerous people think it's been godly to be not making a decision. I'm not sure if you got that or not. I hope you got it. If you didn't get it, come talk to me. Because it's it's really important. We're not called to be passive. We're called to be leaders in our homes. You should not put your wife in a position of being tempted to take over your God-given responsibility. See how that ties into decision-making? We, we see sometimes women that just are running so far out ahead of their, their husbands, and it's because the husband hasn't led. This is the role that God has given you. Singles, think about this as you, if you want to be married one day, you are the leader in your home. Don't be passive. Sure. Proverbs 24, 30 through 34, Ecclesiastes 10, 8. Don't be a slacker. Uh, being, being a leader, being a spiritual leader. Sure. Off the top of my head, nothing is coming to mind. Let me get to the end of this and, and, and we'll... I'll debrief my brain, and it's the way I do things at my age. Thank you. Eight, the husband is to provide for and protect his wife as much, much in the same way as Christ provides and protects his chosen ones. You must provide and protect for your family, and that takes us to imperative number 27, and that's 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 through 13. In fact, when we were with you, this is what we command you. If anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat. Bless you. For we hear that there are some among you who walk irresponsibly, not working at all, but inferring that with the work of others, interfering with the work of others. Now we command and exhort you, such people, by the Lord Jesus Christ, 
that quietly working they may eat their own food. Brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Uh, guys, I realize in, in this room, I, I think you guys are excelling at, at being hard workers. Uh, so let me talk to the singers for a second. Uh, young men, you should be recognizing the diligence of there's going to come a day where I need to provide. You should be doing that now. You should be hard workers right where the Lord has placed you. Uh, uh, you know, as I speak to singles, uh, I will frequently tell a single, you know, if you're looking for a bargain and a wife, you need to be a bargain. And, and one of the areas I see in our society is just young men that, that aren't hard workers. And I realize when I had no problem finding a job when I was 12, and that was a long time ago because I'm old. And I realize it's a lot harder for, for, for finding a job today. But that doesn't change what Scripture says. Men, if you aren't working hard now, don't think all of a sudden you're going to say, I do, and you're going to become a hard worker. First uh, Timothy, and this is on your handout, First Timothy 5.8 says, Don't provide for your family. You're worse than a non-believer. And men, that applies to singles too. Uh, making sure a, and I'm not going to read them. You guys can do that because I'm going to get you out of here pretty quick. Uh, but it takes us to point nine. The husband must provide for her sexual desires with a godly, cherishing way. Uh, men, we need to understand God's design for intimacy in marriage. And that takes us to imperative 28. First Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8. For this is God's will, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, so that each of you knows how to control his own body in sanctification and honor. This, excuse me, verse 5, not with lustful desires like the Gentiles who don't know God. This means you must not transgress, transgress against and defraud his brother in this matter because the Lord is avenging in all these offenses. And we also previously told you and warned you that God has not called us to impurity but to sanctification. Therefore, the person who rejects this does not reject man but God who also gives you his Holy Spirit. Man, the, the picture of intimacy, the picture of marriage is found in Genesis chapter 2. When, when God created man and woman, God defined, and he's the one that designed marriage. Unfortunately, we live in a culture where I think we learn more about what you think marriage and what sexual intimacy is in marriage. Probably from the internet has, has more... more bandwidth in our society than Genesis chapter 2. Sadly, it is sinful. Men, intimacy in marriage is designed for oneness. Uh, it is designed for marriage. Uh, our culture has done nothing but lie to us, and it's a lie that permeates our society. But God's been clear. God wasn't confused on this. God created man and woman. Chapter 2, verse 24, 20, 23, 24, and 25. 
clearly says what God's design was for intimacy. Understand God's design for intimacy is an act of giving to your wife rather than receiving. Understand that God's goal is not performance, but rather an expression of love. That's what God's goal is. Guard your mind, make purity in thought, attitude, behavior, your goal, develop a biblical view of sexuality. God gave us intimacy for oneness. Do not be controlled by sexual lust, which can lead to unreasonable demands of your wife. Romans 13, 14, make no plans to satisfy fleshly desires. Do not be dependent on sex to build your ego. Do not seek to satisfy your sexual lust through pornography or with other people. Understand your body belongs to your wife for consensual purpose. I'm going to say it again. We must know what God's design is for intimacy in marriage. It's oneness. It's, it's the two became one. Understand that God does not want you to be selfish and deprive your wife. That's 1 Corinthians 7.5. Point 10 on your handout, the husband is to be the source of strength and dependability in times of trial, much in the same way as Christ is. And, and the picture of this is cast your burdens on the Lord. Uh, imperative 29 is tied to Psalm 55, verse 22, and 1 Peter 5.7. Cast your burdens on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never allow the, the righteousness, the righteous to be shaken. Uh, don't wait for a big trial to start this. Men, be casting your burdens, your cares to the Lord. Depend on the Lord to sustain you as the leader in your home. It's a funny word, sustain. Uh, do you recognize... Just that we are here today is God's sustaining love for this world. If God were not sustaining us, this would not exist. Think about this. God is sustaining your marriage. If it were not God sustaining your marriage, your marriage wouldn't be. You can comfort others in your home. Remain calm, trusting God's sufficient grace. Be a role model of thankfulness, of contentment. Takes us to point 11. The husband is to understand his wife and treat her with respect. A husband must live with his wife in an understanding way. And that takes us to imperative 30. And it's 1 Peter 3, 7. Uh, and, and I need to say this, but we're not going to go there just for the sake of time, but 1 Peter 3, 7 ties back to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, and, and it talks about Jesus. When, when, when Jesus was, when, when he was uh, ridiculed, when he was sinned against, when he was mocked, he didn't retaliate. And in verse 3 7 is tied to how Jesus responded, and it says, Husbands, in the same way, same way as Jesus, 
live with your wives in an understanding of their weaker nature, yet showing them honor as co-heirs. Do you recognize, for, for the married men, do you recognize your wife is a co-heir of the king? Singles, you, they you get married, your wife is a co-heir. There's this equality that you're both beggars trying to find the bread. showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. That's a high calling. You live with your wife in an understanding way. The consequences of not doing that is your prayers are hindered. And uh, these are on your outline. Be sensitive to her. Show interest in her opinions. Be compassionate. Do not threaten be, don't be threatened by her gifts, her holiness, her service, but encourage them. And, and I'm going to say this for, for a lot of you guys. I know you're very hardworking guys, and your wife is more freed up to serve in many ways. But don't be threatened by your wife's service. Don't be threatened by your wife's gifts. Uh, strive harder to, to free her up that she is freed up. Seek to help and encourage in areas where you need to grow. Seek her encouragement there. Be willing to accept admonishment from your wife without being threatened or defensive. Wow. Can, are you easy to be approached if your <coughs> wife wants to bring something to you? Men, we need to be. Confess your sins to her and be willing to confess your sins to God with her as a witness. Lead by example. And I gave you a couple of verses to consider there. You know, if, if you have a sin that you continue to struggle with, the, the sweetest thing to do is ask your wife to pray with you. I don't want to be this type of man. Will you pray with me? Make a habit of seeking forgiveness. Be under, being understanding by being a good listener. Yikes, that's a hard one. Are you a good listener? Be understanding by encouraging her daily. Hebrews 3.13 is one of my many, I have several, life verses. Uh, encourage one another daily, as long as it's today, that no one is caught by the deceitfulness of sin. Look for ways to compliment identifying evidence of God's grace. Do you, do you let your wife know the evidences of God's grace that you see in her life? And here's the last one, guys. Frequently tell your wife why you love her. I'm going to pray. Lord, Father, I do thank you for your word. Your word is so full of truth and exhortations to us, Lord. Father, I pray, Lord, that the words that have come out of my mouth bring you glory. Father, I, I pray our time together is truly the picture of iron sharpening iron. Lord, I, I pray, Lord, that I would grow. Even almost 42 years of marriage, Lord, that I would continue to grow in being the husband that lives his life and lives with his wife in a way that worships you. Father, I pray for the remainder of this weekend, Lord. I pray for these men. I just thank you for the time we've had together. This truly is a gift from you because we are so well aware of what we deserve. 
Thank you, Lord, and I pray this in your son's name. Amen. Thanks, guys.